Good morning. As that song was ending, my mind was kind of racing a little bit, and the thought that I had was, I've got to get over there to the music stand and grab it and bring it up here so that I can preach from it. And then I realized, I don't have to do that this morning. Um, this is um, uh, a neat thing I just to share with you. Uh, uh, before coming uh, to New Life down in South Carolina, the church that we were at, uh, this was a pastor appreciation gift uh, that somebody in the church made uh, for me, but it was a gift from the church. And it's nice to be able to pull it back out again, you know. And so uh, um, in any event, uh, um, it's, it's, it's neat. It brings back a lot of memories, and hopefully it will get good use here as well. So Welcome. Glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, we're excited to be able to continue our study in the book of John. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 here this morning. And I don't know how many of you have read uh, the weekly update that went out, but I had a tease in there for this morning that I'm going to repeat here uh, at the start. But have you ever wished you could go back and and do something over in your life, um, get a second chance at something, perhaps to uh, make right uh, something that went wrong, uh, perhaps to make a different decision, fix a broken relationship, uh, take back hurtful words or, or actions. Um, perhaps you'd like to have a second chance at your education, your career, uh, or maybe your financial strategy. Um, I know that if I could go back to my late teens and early 20s, I would have started investing then. Um, but that didn't happen. And so, uh, but I, I suppose a lot of us have some regrets in, 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 in various areas of life. But here in John chapter 3, Jesus reveals to us that our greatest need for a do-over is spiritual in nature. And there is nothing that we can do to change our circumstances, to change our situation. Um, it's not something that we can bring about. Instead, we need a brand new start. We need a, really a, a whole new life. And as Jesus puts it, we must be born again. And so that's where we're going this morning, but let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word to us and the things that it has to teach us about yourself, about ourselves. Lord, how we are to relate to you, how we are to respond to your word to us. And I pray that you would give us receptive hearts this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just invite you um, to be our teacher and our guide this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, about six months before I became uh, a Christ follower, a friend of mine had become a Christian. And uh, like myself, uh, coming out of the background that we both came out of, we became just, you know, on fire for Jesus. And he was a little overzealous, I thought. And I remember him coming to me, uh, keep in mind, this is before I knew anything about this, but he would tell me, he said, Paul, Paul, you got to be born again. 
you got to be born again. And I go, what are you talking about? He said, you got to be, you know, you, you, know you, you think you're a Christian. You're not a Christian. you got to be born again, you know. And, and he, the more he was talking about it, the more irritated I got, you know. And I was just thinking, what in the world are you talking, you know, born again, born again. This was my understanding of born again. And this is what I told him. I said, listen, I don't need to be born again. The only people that need to be born again are losers, they're the Christians that failed the first time around, and they got to be born again to get it right. I'm good, I thought. That was, that was kind of what I understood that to mean. Um, I was in for a surprise. And it actually took a, a, a couple of years before I really fully understand what that term meant. Maybe you're, you're, you're like me. Maybe you're still wondering what exactly does it all mean. But in John chapter 3, what, what we see is, is that not only is this topic introduced, but, but in this chapter, we have three critical questions that are being answered here. The, the first of which is, why do I need a new birth? The second is, is, what exactly is the new birth? And then thirdly, how can I be born again? And so that's where I want to go this morning is to try to answer these questions in that order. So we're going to talk about why we need the new birth. Um, because obviously Tom thought I needed it. Um, I now know I needed it, but at the time I didn't know that I needed it. So let's look at John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over. We're going to start reading in verse 1. We'll be going through verse 21 today and then picking up the second half of the chapter next week. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, a little bit of background information on Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader, one of 6,000 Pharisees in Israel. And they were well steeped in the law, had huge portions of the Old Testament memorized, and they were zealous about obeying the law. They were all about following the rules. You know, if you were a parent and you had a kid that wanted to be a Pharisee, you were in heaven, you know, right? You know, because they're about following the rules. And, And they were so much so about that That when they studied the Ten Commandments, they began to think, well, okay, for instance, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. That's God's day. Hmm, well, what constitutes work? 
And they would start to parse it, and they would start to think, well, geez, how far is, uh, how, how much walking is too much walking? How much work is too much work? And so they came up with all of these laws to try to help them keep the Ten Commandments. Now, I can really relate to this, because after I became a Christian, I had to admit that when it came to relationships, I didn't have a clue. I mean, how do you do a Christian relationship? I mean, I, I didn't know. I was 21 when I came to Christ, and I met a girl. I liked her. We started going out, and, and, and I remember one night, I came home just in tears. And uh, my roommate looked at me and said, hey, Paul, what's, what's wrong? I said, Mike, <laughs> I've sinned. You know? And he said, what? What'd you, what would you do? Oh, oh, it's just too much. You know, so did, you know did, you, did you sleep with her? Did you, you know, he's asking me all these questions. No, no, no. So what did you do? I sat too close to her on the couch. <laughs> and, you know, and he stopped and he looked at me. <laughs> he kind of chuckled and laughed. And here I am in pain. And he's laughing at me. But what I came to realize was in my zeal to want to honor God in the area of relationships, I erected a rule or a law that said in order to keep my relationship pure, I've got to maintain a certain distance on the couch from her. I I had other rules too, you know, and some of them were really good, like being out of the house by 11 o'clock because I knew my body gets tired and I don't need to be there after 11 o'clock. But in any event, it wasn't the conviction that I had didn't come from God. It came from breaking my own rules, right? And, and that's the problem with being a Pharisee. That's a problem with legalism is when we create rules to help us, even though they're well-intended, they're not God's rules oftentimes that we break. And so sometimes it's a false guilt. So I, I understand this. Now, they came up with 613 rules or commands to keep the Ten Commandments. And, and they actually had some more on, on top of that. And most of them were prohibitions. In other words, most of them were don'ts. You can't do this. You can't do that. You know, better not do this, as opposed to the do's. Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the Jews. So he was a member of the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin, which was a body of religious leaders, 70 in in total, led by the high priest, made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. And, um, And Nicodemus was a part of this crowd. And the scripture says that he came to Jesus by night, Now, we don't know why that is. We can only speculate as to why he came at night, but he was curious. He was curious because he he says, we know that you've come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Now, what was actually going on in his mind? What was he thinking? Why did he come to Jesus? What was he hoping to find? What was he hoping to ask? Um, We don't know. Now, we do know he treated Jesus with great respect because he refers to him as rabbi. And we talked about that last week. That was a a term of respect. And he, being a fellow rabbi, is saying, Jesus, I acknowledge that you're a great teacher, like myself. And then Jesus answered him. 
which I, I, I actually think is kind of funny. Because when you look at that, it says, Jesus answered him. I said, where's the question? There's no, there's no question there. But it says, Jesus answered him. And it's as if Jesus knew what Nicodemus needed, even though Nicodemus didn't know himself. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I think what Jesus is getting to here is is that he understands that here comes this religious leader, a man with a list of credentials as long as your arm. And, And Jesus wants to make sure that he understands that his credentials are not enough. His background is not enough to get him into the kingdom of God. He cannot please God, no matter how hard he tries, no matter what he does, it's not enough. And if Nicodemus can't make his own way into the kingdom of God, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then just a little bit later, Jesus says, If you want to earn your way to heaven, here's what you have to do. You have to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's an impossible standard, even for Nicodemus. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us that being religious won't get you in. Being a teacher of the law or being a pastor will not get you in to the kingdom. Living a moral life won't get you in. Memorizing scripture won't get you in. Seeing miracles, and and catch the second part, and recognizing Jesus as either a great teacher, a prophet, or even the Son of God is not enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Scripture says even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they tremble. They're not saved, even though they believe that fact that truth. So something else is needed. And Jesus tells us plainly what it is. You must be born again. Unless one is born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven, let alone enter it. Now the Jews took great pride in their identity as the people of God. They believed that unless they did something really heinous, every Jew was going to make the kingdom of God. I mean, we're God's chosen people. End of story. You just have to be a Jew. Don't you all wish you were a Jew? You know, I mean, that's the way that they thought. But when Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again, he's telling him that your lineage is not enough. Being a Jew is not enough. You don't get in because you were born to some special class of people. Again, we talked about this, I think, last week, too, that, you know, we don't get into heaven on the coattails of the faith of our parents or our grandparents. 
God has no grandchildren, I said. You're either a child of God or you're not. And so in, in doing this with Nicodemus, this is the good news for us, is that Jesus is now leveling the playing field. See, the Jews are no different than we are. We are all sinners in need of grace, and we all need a Savior, and we all have to come to him the same way. We are all hopelessly lost apart from the grace of God. So how do I answer that question? This is why we need to be born again. This is why we need a new birth. So having established the reason for the new birth. Let's talk about what it means um, exactly, uh, what the new birth is, is all about, what it means. Because clearly, I was confused when I was younger. Nicodemus was confused, right? Because as soon as he heard Jesus say it, he's, his mind is going, wait, wait a minute. How can a guy, once he's old like me, be born again. Yeah, can he go back into his mother's womb? That's nonsense. That can't, you know. So obviously that wasn't what Jesus was referring to. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people believe that Jesus's reference to water here means physical birth. Um, because we know that right before a woman gives birth, her water breaks. And that is an interpretation of, of some here. But that seems a little silly to me. It's, 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 like, you have to, it's like you're saying, you, you have to be born before you can be born again. It's like, duh, of course. Um, you know, o- only living, breathing people can be born again, Right? And if I wasn't born, then I would have no need to be born again. So I'm not sure that that would be correct. Uh, Other people think this might be a reference to water baptism. But again, I don't think that's correct because it would contradict the rest of Scripture that speaks about our salvation um, being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and there's nothing that we can do to add to what Christ has done for us. So I believe the, the reference to water here is symbolic of washing and cleansing. It's a picture that Jesus is, is, is actually painting for us. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, specifically in Ezekiel chapter uh, 36. I don't have this up on screen, but listen if you would. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, that first part talks about sprinkling water. It's an act of cleansing, to cleanse them from their unrighteousness. Now, of course, we know water doesn't wash away sin. Only the blood of Christ does that. But it's a picture of cleansing. But the other thing is, I read that passage, was did you notice all the eyes that were mentioned? And let me review. I 
will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. So who's doing the work? God is. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works we have done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, the new birth is a supernatural act that, that God does for us. And it, he makes a spiritually dead person come alive. He gives him new life. It is the regeneration of our spirit by the Holy Spirit, by the quickening and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and only, only God can, can make a spiritually dead person become spiritually alive. This is a miraculous event. It's, the new birth is a sovereign act of God whereby he causes us to be born again. And we see that more clearly in verse 6 and following. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is it with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. See, when Jesus says, What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit, what he's saying is, is that physical birth brings people into the physical world. And spiritual birth brings people into a spiritual world. Two different worlds. The first birth ushers a person into an earthly family. The second into a spiritual family, the family of God. And despite his great learning, and despite the numerous Old Testament passages that speak and point to the day when God's people um, would receive a new heart and a new spirit, Nicodemus didn't understand these things. Thus, illustrating the fact, no matter how smart you are, God has to grant us understanding to understand spiritual things because they, they have to be spiritually appraised. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. God has to take away the veil, open our eyes, open our hearts, quicken us, make us alive in order to understand if we're to believe. 
Now, Jesus like, likens the, the, the Spirit's work in regeneration to the wind, which I think is just an awesome analogy. In, in fact, the word that's used and translated wind and spirit is the same Greek word, pneuma, which is also translated breath elsewhere. And Jesus says, you can't control the wind. It blows wherever it wills. We can't see the wind, but we can see and we can hear and we can feel its effects. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Um, now, most of you guys know we came up from South Carolina. In South Carolina, we have to deal with hurricanes. Um, even when I lived in New England, I had to deal with hurricanes. And so there's been a number of storms that I've been in. Some of you have been in hurricanes. Some of you have been in tornadoes. So you're going to understand this, this, this analogy, this picture. But I remember one night I was in my house in Columbia, South Carolina, when Hurricane Hugo hit. Now, um, I'm, I'm a good couple hours from the coast, two and a half hours from the coast where the hurricane come in. But the winds started picking up so much so, we lost all our power. And I'm sitting there at night. That's the worst time to have a hurricane or a tornado come through because you can't see anything. But I'm there by myself and all of a sudden, you just, you can hear the wind blowing. And then you start to hear the cracking. And you know what's happening. Trees are being snapped in half. And things are banging against the house. It was unmistakable that there was wind. I couldn't see it, but I knew it. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He said, you can't see the Holy Spirit. You can't see, you know, what he's doing. But you can feel the effects of his spirit as he works in a person's life. And, and we didn't cause ourselves to be born physically. And we can't cause ourselves to be born spiritually. This is what John said. Remember back in John chapter 1? We need to remember this. In verses 12 and 13, he said this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is a picture of what it means to be born again. It is a sovereign, supernatural work of God that he does in a person's life. And then James chapter 1, verse 18, it says that out of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the only way to be born again is to have God breathe his life into you and into me. No amount of striving or self-effort will ever cause you to become a child of God. We must be born into God's family. And you're not in control of that any more than you were in control of being born into the family you were born into. You, know, you didn't have a say in that. It just happened. And if you're a child of God this morning, 
You are so because God chose to extend his grace to you. That's, that's simply it. He chose to lavish his love upon you and cause you to be born again. I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. He said this, If you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit in his sweetness, in his power, in his mercy, and in his grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. That's powerful. And one of the proofs that we have been born again is that we believe. We believe. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead so that we might have eternal life. Faith in Jesus is an unmistakable proof that we have been born again. It's not the only proof, but it is a proof. Verse 11, we're making wonderful progress. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Um, I think I've mentioned this already, but you know, God's word is so much bigger than it looks when you first look at it. There is so much uh, underneath the surface. I think I shared with somebody last week, it's kind of like an iceberg. You know, we, all we see is what's at the top. We have no idea how, how huge, humongous, how marvelous God's word is underneath where we can't see. And as I was going through this chapter, it's just one thing after the other started popping out at me. And I had question after question. And there's no way we can cover everything. But one of the questions I had here was, who is the we Jesus is referring to? I mean, did that not stand out to you? It's, it's like, why not I? You know, I speak of, but he says, we speak. Um, now, a few people have suggested that this is what's known as a majestic plural or a royal we. Now, it's a stylistic device that is used in literature and has been used for centuries. Um, there are four occurrences in the Old Testament where God uses a majestic plural, and it's, it, it highlights one's greatness, one's authority, and one's power. Um, I, I, re- I remember reading not too long ago that a more recent example is when uh, Queen Victoria um, had heard a um, distasteful joke, and she said, we are not amused, okay? That would be an example of a majestic plural. Um, and again, it's a stylistic device, but I don't think Jesus is using that here. I don't, I don't think that's what it is. I believe he's referring to his disciples, perhaps to John the Baptist or both, um, and it would also stand in opposition to what Nicodemus's opening statement was back in verse 2. If you remember, he says, uh, teacher, we know, we know that you are teacher from God. When Jesus says, well, let me tell you what we know. 
In verse 12, we see a change from the singular to the plural. By the way, verse 4 is plural too. So Jesus isn't just telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. He is telling us we have to be born again. Everyone has to be born again if they are to see life. Now, it's not clear in the text where the conversation with Nicodemus ends and the commentary of John begins. Now, most of the time when we're reading, we rely on quotation marks um, to guide us as to know who is speaking. Sometimes it's very clear, um, you know, because uh, the the writer indicates that a a different speaker is speaking, but oftentimes we have to rely on quotation marks. The the only problem is, is that the early Greek manuscripts didn't contain quotation marks. So we don't always know. Now, what that means is, Uh, For those of you that have red-letter Bibles, you can't necessarily trust that what you see in red means it was Jesus' words, okay? You have to look a little bit more closely at that. So if if some people believe the transition begins in verse 13, if so, then John is recalling Jesus' ascension and his incarnation as he wrote this. Now, other people think that the transition actually uh, begins in verse 16 because Jesus refers or, or there's a reference to the Son of Man. And we know that Jesus, um, that was his preferred title, the Son of Man. So many people believe that Jesus is continuing to speak through verse 15. Most agree, however, that John is providing commentary in verses 16 through 21. Now, having said all that, it really doesn't matter, right? Because this is still God's word, his holy, inspired word, and it's still true, regardless if it was Jesus speaking or John speaking. So now that we know what the new birth is and why we need it, the last question I want to address is, How do I experience this new birth? Let's look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So how do I experience this new birth? By yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and looking to Jesus to save you from your sin. That's what verse 14 is really all about. Whether Jesus or John is speaking, the historical reference is most helpful here. So I'm going to take us back to 
Numbers, where this reference comes from. And it was during a time in which the people of Israel were rebelling against God and rebelling against Moses. And God basically said, I've had enough. And then he afflicts them in a very unusual way. So in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And then, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now you read that story, and you, you've got to be—you got to admit, if you're honest, this is crazy, <laughs> right? I mean, this is this is crazy. Make a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, have those who are bit by a snake look at it, and they'll be saved. I mean, that's that's kind of nuts, but that's what God told them to do, and they had to be willing to humble themselves and trust and obey what was told them. If they were to live, if they didn't, they would die. Well, we too have been smitten, but not by snakes, by sin. And our only hope is to lift our eyes to Jesus. That's what he's saying here. To look at Jesus. If we want to live, we must set aside our our sensibilities and our self-effort. And we need to trust in Jesus and his finished work upon the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 6, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you might say that in the Old Testament, that bronze serpent was a type of Christ. That just as the people had to look to the serpent to be saved, we have to look to Jesus as he is lifted up on a cross where he bled and died for us. So let me ask you, have you looked to Jesus? Have you put your faith and your trust in him? Have you experienced the new birth? Now, John 3.16 is, is perhaps the most well-known and most loved verse in the entire Bible. But do we really understand it? Do we really understand the depth 
of God's love for us? Do we truly understand what we have been saved from? I don't think we can really truly grasp John 3, 16 without also grasping verses 17 and 18. Look at, remember what it said. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Listen, we are all sinners who stand condemned before God. Every single human being who has ever lived stood, stands, will stand condemned before God. And the penalty for our sin is eternal separation from God for all eternity in a place called hell. And despite what the world would say, despite even what some churches would say, hell is a very real place. Scripture describes it as a place of outer darkness, yet it burns with an unquenchable fire. It is a place of eternal conscious torment. But it's not a place that was created for you and me. It was never created for human beings. It was created for the devil and his demons. But it yet will be the abode of many, many people because they have rejected Christ. Here's the good news. We don't have to go there. None of us have to go there. No one has to go there. Jesus died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's what he did for us on the cross. He gave his life for us on that cross so that we should not perish but have eternal life. And if anyone goes to hell, it's because they chose to go there. They're going to go, as I, as I have often said, tripping over the body of Jesus to get there because he has done everything he could possibly do to to provide salvation for us. But we have to humble ourselves and say, I am going to accept your gift of salvation through Jesus. I'm going to stop trying to earn my way. I'm going to stop trying to be my own God, be my own boss. Lord Jesus, I bow to you. Those who believe will be saved. Those who do not believe are already condemned. Let's finish up with verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So much I could say about that, but I just want to bring this to a close by, by interjecting, interjecting here and, 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 and thinking. You may be here this, this morning, you may be watching online and wondering, you know, Paul, how do I know? If I'm born again, how do I know if I'm saved? Well, my response is simply this. Do you believe? Do you believe? You, you, you know you are born again when you believe, truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead for your salvation. You know you have been born from above when you truly love God and love those who are born of him. And you know you are born anew when you obey his word and you see yourself becoming more and more like Jesus. Don't take my word for it. Take John's word for it. In his first epistle, not his gospel, But in his first epistle, John writes this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I think scripture is very clear you don't see evidence of the new birth in your life or you're not you have not yet believed my encouragement that's more than encouragement my plea is today you would turn from your sin and turn to Jesus trusting him and him alone for your salvation If you have been born again, thank God for his salvation. Thank God that you are a part of his family. Thank God that he has made you a new creation. You know, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. My challenge to you is live as a new creation. You know, we all appreciate second chances, don't we? Um, To undo past mistakes, make better choices, be a better person. But the greatest do-over we could ever hope for is not something that we're in control of. It's what God has done for us. Praise God, he can do what we cannot. He can give us a new birth, a new beginning, and a whole new life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word.
to us. And Lord, what an amazing 21 verses. We haven't even gotten through the whole chapter, but Lord, what, what truth, what great love. And, and I just think even how you challenged Nicodemus, um, how you were so direct with him, it's because you loved him. And you desired for him to know you and be saved. And Lord, we know that you love us and you desire for us to be born again, to be a part of your forever family. And Lord, it's my prayer that there wouldn't be a single person here or watching online or listening later in the week that would fall short of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. Draw us ever closer to yourself. And may we we all rejoice together that we are a part of your eternal family. In Jesus' name, amen.